Today we're going to look at uh, Philippians chapter 4, and uh, um, go ahead and open your Bibles there. And We're going to, we closed off last week um, in chapter 3 talking about um, following Paul's example as he follows Christ, and, and uh, he, he spoke a little bit about those who he doesn't want us to follow, and, um, and then he talked about being transformed in our lowly body. Uh, that we could be conformed to His glorious body. And what a contrast that is, if you stop and you really think about that. This body of flesh one day will be transformed into His glorious body. Um, if you're looking forward to that day, say Amen. 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 <laughs> I tell you, you know, I just, it's just amazing. You stop and you think of, uh, I was helping somebody move the other day, and Saturday morning I got up and it was like, oh boy, what's going on, you know? And, uh, your body is ever fading away, the Word of God said. It says decaying, and, and uh, it's just good to know that one day uh, we're not going to just end up as a pile of dirt somewhere, that we're going to be transformed <clears throat> uh, into the likeness of conformed to His glorious body. And, uh, and then here in verse 1, um, he begins kind of a, uh, a different set of commands, really, a different set of instructions, of principles, and um, he's really concerned about the Philippians, the, the church there, and he's concerned about their, their stability in their faith. Um, and there's a lot of things that we're going to look at in the coming weeks in this last chapter of Philippians that are very common to us. We've probably memorized verses out of here, and we've probably um, you know, studied that uh, portion of text. It talks about prayer. It talks about joy. It talks about a lot of different things, and we're probably very familiar with this portion of Scripture. But a lot of times, when you're familiar with something, you fail to see the, you know, the, the, the forest through the, the, the trees kind of a thing. And it's, it's kind of an important thing that we stop and we kind of take some time as we, we work through this section of Scripture together. And the, the first section here is verses 1 through 9. And um, he's really, like I said, concerned about their, their spiritual stability. And so he wants to share some principles with them to help them um, grow in that area of their life. And so he, he, he's viewing here their, their stability spiritually, and he wants to share with us some, some Scriptures with the Philippians about their, their own walk with the Lord. Um, it's kind of a uh, fair statement, I think, to say that as you look around our nation, um, there's a lot of instability in churches. There's a lot of uh, churches that are unstable from the leadership on down. And uh, they're unstable in the sense, what I mean by that is not that they're failing. <laughs> you know, not, I mean, a lot of these churches could be full. Um, but it seems that sometimes churches are unable to stand against the wiles of the devil, as the, the scripture um, explains it. And they, instead of standing against those wiles of the devil, as, as Bible, the Bible says, they're almost embracing them. And uh, sometimes that's hard to understand, but we see it all around us. A lot of churches are uh, just wrought with worry and problems and anxiety. Seems that no matter who you talk to uh, in ministry, and you talk if you're talking about a church to them, um, more than likely the conversation leads to some situation they're dealing with in their church that's not a good situation. 
there's always a problem. They're always trying to fix something. Um, and so the church in general, a lot of times, can be very unstable because it's not built on the proper foundations that God lays down for us in his word. And uh, I think a lot of times we, we just assume that everything's okay. And we, we don't really find this surprising, at least I don't, because scripture tells us that the church will be under attack. And when you're under attack, a lot of times that causes instability. In John uh, 16, Jesus said, in this world you will have what? Tribulation. You will have it. It's not a question mark. He said there will be days when people will actually persecute you, take your life, do to you what they did to me. They would take you before the courts, they'll throw you in prison, and he tells them expect that. That's just, it's going to happen. And it does happen in certain parts of the world, even today. There's a hostility in our world today um, that's, that's really empowered by the devil, the Satan himself, against Christ, against Christians, against anything that the church stands for. Now, if you're willing to water everything down and just become like the world, well, then they don't have a problem with it. But even Jesus said that we have to be watchful and prayerful concerning these things. Um, he says, be on alert. Uh, he told Peter and Paul. Um, he told us that the devil moves around like a roaring lion, seeking whom, it may, who, whom he may devour. And uh, you know, if you stop and you think, even our flesh um, stalks our redeemed self a lot of times and drags us to places that we don't want to go, that we know it's wrong and, and we end up in this situation. We're going, how do we get here? So we're always under assault. There's always some form of, of uh, persecution going on. And, you know, persecution necessarily isn't just, you know, somebody breaking in the doors and take, putting you in handcuffs and putting you in prison. I think that a lot of times there is a, a subtle persecution that goes on that's even sometimes more dangerous. Um, and that's what we have in our country. There's kind of a, an underswelling of persecution against the church in a way that seems like, well, it's not that big of a deal. But it has effects. I think if you were living in a society where being a Christian would cost your life, well, you know, that's, that's pretty clear cut. But when you're in a society that just constantly kind of tries to grind away at the values and everything you stand for, after a while you begin to kind of become callous toward that. And you think, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, they're the world, they're acting like the world, what do you expect? But it does have an, an effect on us as believers. And so some believers tend to kind of meet them halfway. They begin to compromise in their own walks. They begin to, um, you know, subtly, in ever so subtle ways, begin to compromise with the society that's around them. And all of a sudden, they find themselves closer to the world than they do to Christ. And that only happens in societies, it even happens in churches. We went to a church when we were away up at the kids um, visiting for Christmas. And uh, it was their Christmas Eve service. It seemed like a good church. Pretty big church, a lot of people and everything. So we get in there and we're ready to start the worship service and everything. And, and I understand it was kind of done in a fun way. But I'm thinking, you know, this is not what I wanted to hear when I went to a Christmas Eve service. But they, 
They said, I still can't believe they did this. They got up and the, the worship leader said, well, there's a song that a lot of people sing this time of year or whatever. Join in me. And he started singing, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. It's like, what is he doing? And everybody's just singing along. And I'm like, is this weird or what? I mean, he went through the whole song. They had it up on the screen and everything. It was just really odd. And I understand it was kind of for the kids, but even so, why would you want at that time of the year when you're supposed to be focusing on the Savior, the one that's born the gift to us, be focusing on a, on a, you know, the Grinch that stole Christmas. And they used it in a quick, quick, you know, cute way a little later on in this little message, you know, how the world steals Christmas and that kind of stuff. But I just thought, boy, that's weird. But it's subtle ways like that that a lot of times we don't realize the impact that all this stuff is having on us and on the church. There was a Russian pastor once who was asked, how is it to pastor a church? Is it difficult in Russia for you to pastor a church? And his, his response was, you know what, in Russia it's very easy because you know where everybody stands. You know, I mean, because they have, at any time somebody could come in and say, ah, you know what, you're following Christ. Uh, this was back when, you know, but even so, I mean, in some countries that's the way it is. Whereas here in America, you know, I mean, you can kind of have a hodgepodge of people together and it doesn't really matter where anybody stands. Matter of fact, he went on and he said, you know, what I don't understand is how in the world you can pastor a church in America where the compromises are so common and so subtle. See, that's the kind of persecution we face every day. And you know what? When we face that stuff, sometimes that can cause us bitterness. That can cause us wanting to retaliate in different, in different ways. And, and uh, we, we try to focus on all these problems. And Paul was concerned for the Philippian church. He didn't want them to grow unstable. And it's in the middle of a battle is when you need to have some stability. You need to have some ground to stand on. Um, you don't want to be in the middle of a, a firefight with, you know, you're fuddling around with your weapon trying to get it loaded. That's not the time to do that. You want to be stable in your thought and your actions, and you want to, you know, execute what you're told to do. Well, it's the same way in the Christian life. But you know what? It's a battle to stay in a stable kind of a... Uh, level area in our own walks. It's just hard. It's, it's not something that comes easy. It's not something that you don't have to work at. And that's really what Paul has here in mind as he talks about this church. Now, you know, he doesn't have any illusions about the Philippian church. They were a great church and he loved them, but he also had some hard things to say to them. And um, he wanted them to know that he loved them and he told, tells them that over and over and over again. He has a, a passion to be with them. When he's not with them, he misses them. Um, you know, and that's, that's true. That's how the body of Christ should be. Um, that's why, you know, when, when we're here on a Sunday morning and you're not, you are missed. You know, you just are. That's just the way it is. Um, and and it's, it's part of our fellowship. It's part of our time together. And see, in their church, they, they had pretty much a lot of things going on. But in certain areas, he tells them that they have to have the mind of Christ. Um, so that's assuming they didn't. They knew that we knew that there's conflict in the church because he goes on here in, in verses two and three in, in chapter four, and he talks about these two women who apparently were quarreling, and they couldn't uh, seem to agree on a lot of things. Um, in, in verse three, he has to ask somebody to fix it. 
if you notice. He says, and I urge you also, true companion, help these women. So obviously the leadership in the church wasn't doing their job. And so there was a lot of instability here in this church, in this congregation. And what Paul was concerned about was that, you know what, some of the people weren't trusting God, some of the people weren't being thankful. Um, you know, they were just playing church. Just like every other church plays church. And there's a whole bunch of different levels of stability or instability in our Christian walks that we can look at. But Jesus was concerned about the stability of the church. He really was. Um, you think about when he restored Peter at last at the John's Gospel there in the final chapter where Jesus restores Peter back to function and as Peter begins immediately then to really manifest another weakness, he basically says, stop right there and do what I tell you. He says, follow me and it will cost you your life. Be strong, he tells him. And that's really the intent of his words. That's what he wants us to hear. Uh, Jesus is concerned about the strength of his disciples, about the stability of his, his disciples. He talks about trials that they'll face and, and different things. And, and that's one of the things that we need to remember, that this Christian life that we live is not just a bowl of cherries. Um, in, in 2 Peter 2.14, he wrote about false teachers, about agents of Satan who were always attempting to, and here's his phrase, entice unstable souls. In other words, for every thing you learn maybe even here this morning about God and you're edified in your spirit, there's probably a hundred things during the week out there in the world that are going to whittle away, kind of whittle away at that, that truth. And, and so it's very important that we realize that, you know, even though we come here and we feel stable and we feel strong here spiritually, how do we feel throughout the week? How do we feel on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday? You know, hopefully you're staying in the Word. Hopefully you're growing in your walk with Christ. Because we have to be vigilant about that. Um, in, in 2 Peter 3.16, uh, he says, untaught and unstable people, and he calls them, and they will distorted the writing of Paul and their own destruction. You know, that happens today. There's people that are taking the Word of God and, and transform, they're trying to twist it, they're trying to, to, to make it something that, say something that it doesn't say just for their own benefit happens all the time. They're distorting scripture. They're misrepresenting what God says. James warned about the same thing. He warned about being spiritually unstable, being double-minded. Uh, people who you know, waver about in different things, they're all over the map. Um, they don't know what they believe. They don't know why they believe what they believe. They don't know which way is right. They can't make any decisions. They don't have any discernment. They're constantly in their, in their walk kind of going back and forth, vacillating between doubt and faith. Feel strong one day, the next day they're just wiped out. They're not single-minded. They're not fixed on righteous truth. They're not focused on the character of God um, and His attributes and how to better understand Him. And it's important that we realize that because what was going on there very much is what goes on in our lives every day. And it's not just in the New Testament. There's people spoken of in the Old Testament. Uh, 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 Reuben, in, in Genesis uh, 49th chapter, his oldest son, uh, there, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, let me just read, I'm just going to read, I'm not going to turn to it myself, I just wrote it down here in my, my notes. 
Here's what he says to Reuben. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn by might and the beginning of my strength, preeminently in dignity and preeminent in power. And you think, boy, this guy's really something, this son Reuben. Well, look at what he says. He goes on. And then he says this, unstable as water. <laughs> you shall not have the preeminence. Sad. What disqualified this, this boy? What disqualified Reuben, this son? What made him as unstable as water? Well, you read about it in, in Genesis 35, 22. He basically committed fornication with a, uh, one of his father's concubines in his father's bed. So his father said, you're, you're unstable. Um, but to say you're unstable as water, I mean, that's, that's pretty unstable. Um, and, and spiritual instability kind of manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Uh, and that's what we want to kind of look at, how we can guard against that. Um, how we can um, make sure that we don't fall into that. And that's what Paul has in mind here. And look at the very first verse, Philippians chapter 1. And you notice there, he says, therefore. Now, we know that whenever you see a therefore, you go back and you see why it's therefore. And so he's basically saying, everything I've taught you up to this point in chapter 3, and you can go back and review your own notes on that. We're not going to go through all that. But everything still holds true. And what he's saying is, on those principles that I taught, that you need to press on toward the goal. What's the goal? Becoming more like Christ. Okay? becoming more like Christ in our practice and, and in the way we live and everything. And as that kind of fleshes itself out in our citizenship as in heaven and all that, and he says, verse 1 there, therefore, and then he says, my beloved and longed for brethren. You know, you can, you can kind of say, boy, he's going to hammer him here in a second, I bet. You know, did you ever get, have a conversation with somebody and they, hey, how you doing? You know, boy, you're just such a nice guy. You know it's coming. Something's coming. But, you know. Sorry, but we don't need you here anymore. Here's your pink slip, or whatever. You know, they lather it on real thick, and then they, you know, kick you right out. Well, you know, that happens in life. But this wasn't what Paul was doing here. He was being sincere. He calls him my beloved. He was really speaking from a, a pastor's heart. And he says, long for brethren. Remember when earlier on in the book he says, you know what? You know, I'm kind of between the two. I don't know if I should go with the Lord or stay here with you. Well, it might be better, better for you to, if I stay here, but then again, I could be with the Lord. I mean, that's how much he loved these people. And, you know, that's the kind of love that the church should have for one another. And I think a lot of us, sometimes we're thinking, hey, the Lord can come back. Praise God. Get out of here. And, you know, I mean, you know, that's our attitude. But sometimes, maybe we need to stop and say, hey, is, is, is my love really the love that Christ had for his church, for one another? Could we really say, well, God, you know, I'd want to go with you, but, you know, if, if I went with you, I, I couldn't spend Sunday mornings here with these people, or Wednesdays, or whatever. Would that really be an honest assessment of our hearts? So he, he calls them his beloved. And then he says, long for brethren. He wants them to know that they're missed. He wants them to know that, remember, he's writing here from a prison, so he's not with them. And he's wanting them to know that, boy, his, his joy is full when he's with them. And he wants them to understand that, you know, they need to, to uh, uh, stand fast, he says, in the Lord. And this is the command that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, and it kind of fleshes itself out in the following verses. And this isn't the first time. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 28, 
I think it's 28. He says the same thing to them. Uh, is it 128? Yeah, uh, 27 there. Um, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind striving together for the faith, faith of the gospel. And so it's, it's, it's on his mind. He doesn't want them to, to slip up. He doesn't want them to lose their footing. And that's the idea here. But you know, if you have a little pen, circle that there at the end of verse 1. So stand fast or stand firm, your translation may say, in the Lord. Because that's what it's all about. That's what the Christian walk is all about. And that's kind of the dominating verb here in these next couple verses. He's saying, you know what, you need to stand firm in the Lord. And if you do that, you'll have spiritual stability. I mean, he understood what they were going through. You remember in, in verse 28 of chapter 1, he said, don't be alarmed by your opponents. He understood they were under attack. Um, in verse 29, he even said, it's been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. They were suffering. In fact, it was, it was severe enough that in verse 30, he says that they were experiencing the same conflict that they had seen in him. And then in chapter 2, he, he kind of indicates that they're not all of the same mind. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he commands them to be of the same mind. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, he tells them, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. So obviously, there was some disagreement in the church. And there was some dissension going on. They were falling not only under the, the, the persecution that was coming from the outside, but even the temptation that, that they faced with one another. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Well, why would he say that if they weren't complaining and disputing? <laughs> and he tells them in verse 15 to, you know, basically calls it a... a you become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You know, that's, that's where we live today. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. And so these words are very uh, good for us to hear. They're encouraging. This isn't something new under the sun. Everything wasn't going as it should have been in the Philippian church. And Paul wanted to point that out. But he also he pointed it out with a very loving heart. He needed... They needed to really kind of recharge their joy batteries because in chapter 2, verse 18, he said, start rejoicing instead of fretting. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says, they were encountering the enemies of the cross. We learned about the Judaizers and all those things. They called them dogs and evil workers and the false mutilation. I mean, this church was really going under, uh, coming under attack. And then you get to chapter 4 and you see this debate between these two women that were going on. And then you realize in verse 6 of chapter 4 that there's some anxiousness, there's some worrying going on. So they didn't have their act together. And so Paul was concerned. And, and so he says, you know what, based on what I've seen so far, I need to share some things with you. And that's what he says there in the, in the very first verse. He says, so stand firm or stand fast in the Lord. That's a, that's a command. That's not an option. That's an imperative command. And it's actually used in military circles, culturally. It was used in a way, kind of the, the idea of stand your ground, stand your post in the midst of the battle. Don't you dare retreat. That's the idea. It means to hold your position while you're under attack. 
It means what Paul was saying in Ephesians 6, in the middle of the battle, you've got your armor on and you've, you've, you've done everything to stand. That's the idea. Stand against the wiles of the devil. Stand firmly, no matter what comes. You don't want to crumble under persecution. You don't want to compromise. You don't want to crumble when it comes time for your testing or, or complaining about it. You don't want to crumble under temptation and sin. You want to stand firm. That's what Paul is trying to point out to them. And if you stop and you think about it, that's really where Paul's heart is. None of us would like to see people crumble under temptation or crumble under persecution. I was watching something on the TV the other day, and it was, I don't know if it was in Australia or where, but they had this military unit. I think they were called the Legion. And what they did is they took these guys, and they, it's like a basic training thing for the specialized unit. And these poor guys, you know, they, they basically have a bunch of guys, and they went them down to these kind of um, eight, eight or nine guys. <clears throat> and uh, they showed some of the things that they make these guys do. And one of the things was they carry this rock around with them wherever they go. They just got to bring this rock. It's probably like a, I don't know, five-pound rock. And they have this big, like, it looks like they're out in the middle of the desert kind of, but there's like brush on the ground and stuff. And there's this big hill, and it's just like rocky all the way up, just rocks, you know, like you're walking on, on, a, on a stream bed or something. And uh, for their, their discipline, what they had to do is they had to go out and they had to make trips up and back. And this is after hours and hours of training, and they're just exhausted for the most part. And the, the, the sergeant would kind of stand up in this little, this little uh, outpost up on, up on stands, and he'd be yelling at the guys. Like, they'd be coming back, and you could see them, you know, they're just dragging their feet, and they're dead, you know, to, on, their, on their feet, and they're carrying this rock. And, and he goes, how many times have you been up there, you know? And it's like, oh, five, you know, how many more times do you have to go? He said, well, once. You know what? You're back at zero. Just like that, for no reason, you know? And I mean, just totally playing with their mind. And uh, this one poor guy, you know, he just would not, and whenever they would do that, they would tempt them. Go ahead, ring the bell. If you ring the bell, you can go home. You can go home and see your family. You don't need to be here. You know, you're dragging the whole unit down. Just go ring the bell. You know, no hard feelings, just go home. And this one guy, man, he's just shuffling his feet up and down this hill. And, and the, the sergeant wanted him out of the unit. He just wanted them gone because he was kind of dragging everybody else down. And the idea is you got to build a cohesive unit. If you have one guy that's constantly in the rears, um, you know, it's not going to work. But they have to do this voluntarily. So they just picked this one guy out of the, these people. They just they even turned the other guys against him. It was, it was crazy. And I guess eventually the guy did ring the bell and go home. But, you know, to see the commitment these men had. I'm not going to give any ground. I'm going to take my stand, and that's the way it's going to be. Um, that's what, what Paul is, is talking about here. And those guys would be a lot better off because they stood their ground and they stuck together as a unit. And what Paul is saying, hey, don't, don't allow things from the world to come in and break up your cohesive relationship you have with each other. And so he, he commands them here very clearly that he wants them to stand firm. Stand firm. A.W. Tozer once said this in a sermon he was preaching. He said, I've been assessing the church for a long time. My conclusion is basically that the church is politely bored with God. <laughs> kind of an interesting assessment. Politely bored with God. And he went on to say, he says, you expect me to entertain you. 
You expect me to do something that will attract your attention and titillate your emotions. Because frankly, if all I do is talk about God, you'll be bored. And he goes on to say, if one is bored with God, that's really a blasphemous attitude and probably leads to the kind of apathy that would make a command of God something more like a suggestion. See, that's what Paul doesn't want them to take. He doesn't want them to misunderstand that this is a command to stand firm. He wants them to understand very clearly that this is his desire and it's not an option. It comes from God. He says, therefore, you know, stand fast in the Lord. And he understands what they've gone through up to this point. That's why he says, therefore, all the stuff that they dealt with. And you stop and you think of, of Christ and you stop and you think of all the things that he went through. That's the whole purpose of, of our Christian walk is to become more like Christ. Well, you know what? Did he ever compromise? No. Did he ever sin? No. Bible says he who knew no sin. He was without sin. He was perfect. Jesus Christ is the model. And he stood firm against all of it. And he never violated any of God's principles. Was he persecuted? Sure. Did he fall? No. Did he compromise? No. Was he tempted? Yes. But did he fall? No. Did he sin? No. He was put through all kinds of trials. But he didn't crumble. He didn't collapse. He stood firm. And that's, that's the, the, the model that we have. And so the goal of our, our life as Christians is to make sure that we're, we're following after what Christ has laid down for us, that, that example. And you notice here that he's kind of speaking from a pastor's heart. He calls him my beloved. He says, I long for you with joy. There's a bond there between these people. And he begins to explain to them that he says that you're my, my joy. You're not only my love, he says my beloved, but you're also my joy. And, you know, you stop and you think the two kind of go together, don't they? Love and joy. Um, if you love somebody, usually they make your heart joyful. You know, he didn't get joy out of his circumstances. You realize that? I mean, his circumstances were not good. He was in prison when he was writing this. He was chained to a Roman soldier, probably in a, in a private prison house. He didn't get personal joy out of his circumstances. But he got it out of his ministry. He got it out of the people that he ministered to, the, the church that he belonged to, the church that he loved. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 says, Who is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? That's what Paul wrote. He says, For you are our glory and our joy. It's just kind of an interesting thing. We sang a, a hymn, uh, we sing a hymn once in a while, uh, speaking about a diadem. Well, that's that word here for crown, diadem. Um, it really talked about culturally, says, when he says, not only my joy, but my crown, it, culturally, back then, they would have uh, a, kind of a laurel, like a flowery leaf or wreath that they would put around people's necks, all right, when they would, um, for certain occasions. One of the occasions was in athletic events. They would get a, a wreath at the end. That was their kind of like their gold medal kind of a deal. And the other time was when you wanted to honor somebody. 
Maybe you had a function, a family function, you want to honor, honor your grandfather or whatever. Well, you'd put a, a, a wreath around his neck, and that would be designate him as the honored individual. Well, what Paul says here is, you are my crown. He means you're my reward. The wreath is, is the, the trophy here. The trophy is kind of a sense of their, their lives being fruitful. And if you stop and you think, you know, that's the most rewarding thing when, when you see God working in people's hearts and in people's lives and reuniting families and, 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 and putting things the way they should be before God. And it's God's work. He's doing it. But it's such a, a, a rewarding thing to watch happen. Paul even said to the Corinthians, you are the seal of my apostleship. In other words, when I look at you and what God's doing in you, it really shows me clearly that, uh, that God is working. So he kind of lathers them up a little bit, sincerely. <laughs> but then at the end of the verse there, he says, so stand firm in the Lord. And it, the language in the original totally changes. The first couple words there, you know, loved, beloved, long for, my joy, my crown, they're all kind of a, a very soft kind of a way of talking to somebody, very nice in conversation. And all of a sudden, it's like he just snaps and says, so stand firm in the Lord. His whole demeanor changes. And we, we don't want to miss that little word there. I don't know if it's in your translation. It should be so. Stand fast in the Lord. And what that means, that little word so in, in the Greek, it, it means uh, kind of in this way. In other words, I'm about ready to tell you how you can stand fast in the Lord. In this way, stand fast in the Lord. And then he was going to go on and, and, and kind of share with us in verses 2 through 9 how to do that. And so you have to learn the principles here. First of all, it's in the Word of God, and, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. These, these verses that are before us. And I, I just want to read them at this point, verses 1 through 9, so we can just kind of get a feel for where we're going to be going in the coming weeks. Verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Sintik to be of the same mind in the Lord. Those are the two women we were talking about. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labor with me in the gospel. And with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And then he begins in verse 4, and he begins to give these kind of almost staccato kind of commands. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness, gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Another one, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then he says, Finally, brethren, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. 
Now, as we're going to be begin looking at these verses in the coming weeks, there's a stability there that we see kind of Paul giving principles how to have stability in your Christian walk. He kind of lists them off there for us. Seven steps, you might put it. But you know, it wasn't, it didn't really necessarily start here. Um, you remember even back in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, uh, Peter says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard lest you be carried away by the error of unprincipled men. You fall from your own steadfastness. Um, that's what, what, what Paul, Peter had in mind for Barnabas. He wanted him to stand firm. And sometimes when you don't stand firm, your whole world crumbles around you, spiritually. And you begin to believe the lies that the world is telling you. You begin to believe the lies that even your own mind is telling you. That's why I think here in verse, um, in verse 9, when he says, he gives a list of things and he says, you know what, think on these things. Sometimes when we get up in the mornings, you know what we allow to speak to our hearts? Our circumstances. So we get up in the morning, we get out of bed, and we go and look in the mirror, and it starts right there. And all of a sudden, you know, we see the bags under the eyes and the wrinkles and everything, and we're going, okay, this is not good. And it just goes downhill from there. Then you realize you've got to, you know, eat breakfast, and you're on a diet, so you can't eat what you want to eat, but you've got to eat something that doesn't really taste that tastier or whatever. And then you're trying to plan out your day, and, and everything just begins to kind of bear down on your shoulders. And before you ever even get in the car and, and start the car up to go, which doesn't start, you know, it's, it's just the world's crashing. The whole day's gone. Sometimes we need to stop and say, you know what, before I even get out of bed in the morning, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not allow all this stuff to speak to me, but I'm going to speak truth to myself. I'm going to sit here and, 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 and just recite some scriptures in my mind. You know, that I'm secure in Christ. <laughs> that, you know, my sins are forgiven. That whatever this day holds, Jesus, you said that you would get me through it. No matter what it is. That's the kind of attitude we need to start the day with. I guarantee you, if you try that, it works. Because then when the problems come, it's not that the problems don't come, the problems always come. That's the nature of life. We all have problems. So deal with it. How do we deal with it? That's the key. How are we going to deal with these problems? How are we going to deal with the situations that come into our lives? Are we going to allow them to create an unstable environment spiritually for us? So that we're, by noon, we're even wondering if we're a Christian at all, you know, because we've done, you know, so many crazy things up to this point, and we're doubting, and we're, you know, the Lord is the furthest thing from our mind. And what Paul is saying here is, don't fall into that trap. There's a way, and there's, a, there's some principles that he's going to share with us to kind of lead us in the way that we should be as believers, spiritually. And I, and I just want to share a couple, a couple uh, verses with you this morning in closing. And this is just the introduction to this because you know, I looked at the whole thing and I didn't have time to develop the whole, the whole process of this. So we're going to look at it again next week and probably the week after that. But I just want to share a couple verses as we close. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, um, Paul says, Look for the freedom Christ has set us free. And then he goes on, he says, Don't you fall back, but stand firm. See, I think sometimes when 
to stand firm, you have to realize where you've come. If you, if you don't realize from where you've come, how are you going to know where you're standing is firm? You know, if you move back, you're not going to know that you move back. So you have to have a proper understanding of where you've come from. And if, if God has saved you, if Christ has paid for your sins and you're forgiven, he says, stand firm. Don't, don't go back into that. In this case here in Galatians, he was talking about the legalism of, of Judaism. He's saying, don't go back there and start practicing all these things. They have nothing to do with Christ. Christ made you free. In Colossians chapter 4, Epaphras is praying that you would stand firm, complete, in the will of God. That's another thing that, that we want to make sure that we're, we're focusing on. What is God's will for me today? Let's stand firm in the will of God and identify God's will for us. There's, it's revealed in his word. You, know, you don't have to you know, uh, go and ask God to give you some kind of special revelation to get his will. It's right in his word. There's a lot of commands that are his will for us every day. So he, he was thinking too in First Thess, Thess, Thessalonians, sorry, chapter three, verse eight. He says, "For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord." Second Thessalonians two fifteen says, "So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught." In First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Um, a lot of us know these words. It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. What's the next word? Unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. See, in Peter's concern, or I mean Paul's concern, was that somehow the Philippian church was going to cave in. They were going to allow this, this uh, unstableness in their own Christian walk to just totally shipwreck them. And, and God wants us to understand that, you know what, when, when the times are hard, the times are difficult, as they had been for the Philippian church, that sometimes it's good for somebody to come along and say, hey, you know what, stand firm in your faith. Don't be ashamed of Christ. Don't you dare for a, a second doubt the power of the gospel. It has the ability to save. It has the ability to transform lives. Don't believe the world that's saying, oh, you know what, you don't have to be so vocal about your religion and, you know, that neighbor that lives across the street that you've never shared Christ with. You know, it's not your responsibility. Don't buy into that stuff. Trust God to do that work in your heart that he desires to do so that we can stand firm in the Lord. And next week we're going to look at what exactly that, that means. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I know this is just kind of an introduction to this section of scripture. But Father, we pray that uh, just through the music that we've sung and, and Lord, the idea of putting ourselves aside and forgetting about our pride and, and, and Lord, really desiring to make you the focus of our life. Lord, we all desire here this morning um, to have stable Christian lives. Um, I just pray this morning that you would commit yourself to God. Uh, just pray, Lord, I want to be spiritually stable. Lord, I, in these days and these weeks to come, as we look at these couple scriptures, Lord, help me to learn these principles of stability and help me to apply them to my life. Uh, prepare my heart as we go through this section of scripture that I wouldn't miss this Lord, I want to be spiritually stable. 
And Lord, we, we want to learn how to do that. Help us to apply those. Father, it's our prayer for this church that it might stand firm against all that comes against it. Not for our own sakes, but that your name might be glorified. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.